0: I didn't realize until I became a parent how many lessons a parent has to teach their children. There are a myriad of lessons, and they're a wonderful lesson if a parent will embrace them and delight in them. But one of the lessons that I'm seeking to teach my children is how to hold certain objects, I want my boys to learn how to hold certain objects. They just uh, won uh, enough prizes at at the Culver's restaurant to be able to get a a football. And so we've been tossing the football around lately. And uh, I want my boys to know how to hold a football. I want them to be able to be versatile at several different sports. And uh, I want them not to be a, a fifth wheel when they're on a team, but be an asset not a liability, so I want them to learn how to hold a football as well as several other different balls, how to pass it, how to put their fingers on the laces and get a good spiral and hit their target. I want my boys to know how to hold a gun. We believe in guns at our house, and we have guns, and we shoot guns, and and, uh, I want my boys to be able to be a dead shot aim. I'm trying to teach them to love God and hate the devil and be a good aim because you just never know what will happen. And so uh, I want my boys to be able to hold guns and to be able to shoot guns and fire. And by the way, my little girl, I want her to be able to hold a gun and to be able to shoot a gun, know how to handle it and how to hold it. I want my boys to know how to hold a shovel. I want them to learn how to hold a a shovel and, if you will, have a good work ethic. I want them to be able to work well with people and work. Uh, This seems like if those two qualities will be present, they might be able to make it in this world. I want them them to have their fingers uh, calloused, and I want them to learn what it is to see a job and seize a job and finish it all the way to the end. I I want my boys to not have their fingers curl the wrong way, if you know what I mean. I want my boys to learn how to hold their Bible, not just in their hand, but in their heart, and to memorize the Word of God. And I want my daughter to as well. Uh, I want my children to know how to hold the Word of God reverently, and with respect and with great decency and honor. I want my children to know how to hold their mother's hand, particularly my boys. I want them to be able to hold her hand with with, uh, cherished honor and love, to be able to let loose someday of her hand and pick up the hand of the one that God has for them as their spouse. And I want to be able to hold my daughter's hand in a way that she would learn how to hold her daddy's hand with respect and honor so that someday she can find the one that God has for her. I want my boys and my children to know, among other things, how to hold a grudge. And I want to teach them from the Bible what the Bible says about how to hold a grudge. You say, are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. I'm very serious. And tonight, for a few moments, I want to preach to you on that subject, how to hold a grudge. You say, you don't need to preach to me. I know how to hold one of those. (laughs) Well, let's look at the Word of God and find out what the Bible says, if anything, about this very important matter of how to hold a grudge. Notice, please, 1 Samuel 18 and verse number 5. Now, remember the context of this passage. 1 Samuel 16 is when David had been anointed as the next king. It would be all the way until 2 Samuel before he would actually assume the throne. And by the way, David never sought the throne. Here in 1 Samuel 18, he is set as, the, if you will, the captain or the officer over the men of war. Saul saw in David good military acumen. Saul saw in David good strategy, good courage, a fearless abandon, a loyalty and patriotism. And he said, I'm choosing David to set him over my men of war. And so he did in verse number 5. David went out with us, Saul sent him, and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass, as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabraes, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Now stop right there for a moment. If Saul had been a good leader, if he had been a wise man, wiser than he was, if he had been a man of tall character, not just tall stature, he would have rejoiced at this. He would have said, great, this is fantastic. I've chosen the right man for the right job. But Saul was not a man of tall character. He was a man of small character. He was extremely insecure, and he saw this as a threat. A threat from a young teenage man. A threat. A threat from a man who had little military experience. A threat just because people... Praised him. Do you know one of the tests of your character is how you respond when people around you are praised? You want to be glad when people around you succeed. This kind of class warfare that is constantly stirred up in the political sector of our world is filled with filled with problems, and it is full of the devil. You should be glad when someone around you has nicer things, and you just give them the benefit of the doubt that they got it honestly. You should be glad when people around you succeed. Not upset, not jealous, not insecure. And Saul was just that. And so Saul, in verse number 8, responded. All right, my character's revealed in my responses. Watch it, verse 8. And Saul was very wroth. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more than the kingdom? By the way, they weren't taking praise away from Saul. They were just saying in this count, because he had just come back from killing the giant, that David had cl- killed 10,000. It, it was, if you will, a, a, a poetic way of saying, heaping praise upon the one who deserved it. Verse number 9, it, verse 80 says, What can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. Verse 10, And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house. And David played with his hand as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice." And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. 1 Samuel 15, Saul had not gone down and killed Amalek, and so the Lord departed from him. He departed, lifted his hand from off him. He, he removed his presence and his power from off of Saul because he had just disobeyed the Lord. Now in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 18, he, it says that Saul was angry, bitter, jealous, angry at David. Wrath, the Bible uses that word. Now, this is what Saul did. Watch carefully. If you want, you can hold a grudge like Saul. You can pick it up just like this and hold it just like this with a white-knuckled, tight-fisted grip. If you want tonight, you can hold a grudge like Saul with a tight-fisted, white-knuckled grip. He refused to let it go. In fact, the Bible says that he held this grudge all the way, you can see and study the pattern, all the way to 1 Samuel 31 when he died. Here in 1 Samuel 18, it says that he had a javelin in his hand. All right, this was to protect him personally. Let's say there was a a threat that got past the outside guard, got past the inside guard, got past his personal guard, and he had to defend himself. So he had a javelin. A javelin would be like our equivalent to our pistol. It was a a shorter weapon. It was a personal. You could conceal it a little bit better. And he had it right there by his throne. And while David was playing a harp one day, Saul was fingering his javelin. Javelin. David had a harp in his hand. Saul had a javelin in his hand. I want to ask, what's in your hand tonight? An instrument of blessing? An instrument to soothe others around you? Or an instrument of death and destruction? And the scripture says that he cast the javelin, intending to smite David even to the wall with it. And the scripture says here in 1 Samuel 18 that, that he missed... Look at 1 Samuel 19. 1 Samuel 19, 8, and there was a war again. and David went out and fought with the Philistines and slew them with a the great slaughter, and they fled from him. And the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand, and David played with his hand. And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin, but he slipped away out of his pre- Saul's presence, and he smote the javelin into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Now, folks, do you see what's happening? Saul is missing the mark. By the way, when you pick up a grudge and hold on to a grudge, you always miss the mark. I found that people that are bitter and critical can't see straight and they can't think straight. Everything is colored by their, by, by their prism. Everything is colored through their, their, their particular lens of bitterness and hatred and criticism. And they can't see straight, and they can't think straight. They can't see straight about their family, about their job, about church, about God. And it gets worse and worse the longer they hold on to it. And such, it, as such was the case with Saul. He was, he was missing the mark. Well, you will miss the mark if you're trying to aim with a weapon and you got something else in your hand. He's got a grudge in his hand, along with a javelin. And he can't. You try. Try to aim with a gun and and something else in your hand at the same time. You can't do that. Try with something else in your hand to hold on to a bow and aim. You can't. Try. Try. Try your your luck at a spear and, and the target and the bullseye and throw the spear with something else in your hand. You can't do it. You'll miss the mark every time. He's batting zero. And don't you know that that, that, uh, while he's doing this, he's doing it based entirely upon a perceived wrong? David never assumed the throne. He never sought the throne. He never tried to usurp the throne. Never once. But Saul always took it that he was. He was always insecure towards David. In fact, he had David marry his daughter, Michael. Made him marry his daughter, Michael, not so that he could have a good son-in-law, but so that he could kill David and use Michael, his own daughter, as a pawn against David. Think of the drama in that household. My, what trouble, why? Because Saul picked up a grudge and he refused to let it go. The scripture says he was trying to kill him. Michael tried to uh, harbor uh, harbor David and, and, and protect him as a good wife would. And Michael loved David, but but it wasn't going to happen. And angry Saul came down upon his daughter, came down upon his son, because Jonathan took sides with David. I mean, look, Saul just about destroyed everything that he had that was dear to him because he refused to let go of the grudge. Amazing. Amazing. And it was based entirely upon a perceived wrong. Look at 1 Samuel 24. Quickly, 1 Samuel 24. It says in verse 1, And it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepcoats by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him, as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him, because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. Think of verse number 7, the power of it. If I were you, I'd mark it. It's so powerful. David stayed his servants. That means he hindered, he kept back his servants with these words and suffered, did not allow them. He suffered them not to rise up against Saul, but Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. Think of it. Self-restraint is one thing, but to restrain others who are running and hiding like a hunted dog? David has great leadership. And with his words, he convinces his men, don't do this, this would be a foolish thing. My, what a blessing. And notice verse 8, David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore, hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord had delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave and some bade me kill thee but mine eyes spared thee and I said I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, A see the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not, know thou, and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. As saith the prophet of the eight, proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? The Lord. Therefore, be judge and judge between me and thee, and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of thine hand David said, look i 'm not trying to con- i 'm not trying to take your throne and you 're coming and hunting me i 'm sitting as the innocent party i 've defended you, I could have killed you just now, and i didn 't kill you. Wow, notice." Saul's response, verse 16, And it came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. Mm. It was based entirely upon a perceived wrong. Do you know if you hold on to a grudge like Saul, you're going to bat zero because you're going to miss the mark all the time. You're going to harbor in your hand and in your heart a desire to get even and a desire for revenge, something that is completely secluded as the Lord's responsibility. You're You're going to cause unnecessary hurt in your family and in the lives of those around you. And here in 1 Samuel 24, you're going to show it to be based entirely upon a perceived wrong. Look at 1 Samuel 26. Something very similar happens. You see, Saul wept and he cried in the presence of David. But it was because Saul was good at cheap, shallow confession and not real repentance. Look at 1 Samuel 26, verse number 5. And David arose and came to the place where Saul pitched. And David beheld the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the captain of his host. And Saul lay in the trench, and the people pitched round about him. Then answered David, and said to Abimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai the son of Zariah, brother to Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul, to the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with thee. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench and his spear stuck in the ground at his bolster. But Abner and the people lay round about him. Then said Abishai to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore let me smite him, I pray thee, with the spear even to the earth at once and I will not smite him the second time. Abishai always had his finger on the trigger. And David said to Abishai, destroy him not. For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Now stop for just a moment. I want to pause and address something. There has been in some of our Bible-believing Baptist churches a misuse of that verse. That the Lord's anointed is the preacher. And I believe that the Lord's anointed is the preacher, just in case you're wondering. The Lord anointed the preacher in the Bible. He anointed the priest. He anointed the prophet. He anointed the king. All of them were anointed. This was a principle of leadership that David grabbed hold of. But the abuse of this has, in some cases, in the last 30, 40 years, has said, you can't ever speak against the preacher, you can't ever talk to him, you can't ever approach him, he's high up on a pedestal, he's never approachable, and he can do and say whatever he wants to, and he gets a free pass. That's not true. That's an abuse of this power the preacher does have accountability and he's accountable to the congregation and any good preacher like the one that you have would open himself up to that he would be glad for input he would be glad for people to come and say if you see something where I'm veering off you show me and 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 by the way if you see the preacher going into doctrinal error you are duty bound and Bible bound and by your conscience and by the spirit to come speak to him and begin to address the matter it was wrong for people in the pew to let the preacher just go pele melee with immoral, immoral activity, with unethical financial activity, and or with doctrinal error. It's wrong. So the preacher's not unapproachable. That's a foolish misrepresentation of this principle. But hear me, just because a truth has been abused does not mean it should be discarded. Let me say it again. Just because a truth has been abused does not mean it should be discarded. And here in this passage in 1 Samuel 26, he says it again. He says, look, he says, I, I'm not going to lift up my hand against the Lord's anointed. Why, why was that in the Bible? I'll tell you why. Because David is giving us an example of submission to authority. And even though authority was wrong, and even authority, though authority was doing what they ought not do, and even though authority should have uh, should should have done things differently, David still said, I am in submission to authority, and I'm not going to be the one to remove them. The Lord can take care of that. Do you see it? And David was not, everything Saul was in this instance, David was not. David was not going to hold a grudge. So they get his canteen, and they get his... his uh, Spear, and they leave and go on the other side. Verse number 13. Then David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great space being between them. And David cried to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Answers thou not, Abner? Basically, he takes the canteen, he and Abishai, and the, the spear <coughs> and goes to the other side and says, Abner, Abner, wake up. And Abner says, comes to God and let him come out of his deep sleep. What, 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 what? Abner, where is the king's cruise of water? And where is his spirit? Abner, you've been sleeping on the job. Abner, you could be replaced by a computer. Abner. <laughs> and, and, and what is happening? Now, Abner wakes up and he says, oh, yeah, what? And they look around and David says, hey, King Saul, I could have killed you just now. I was standing right over top of you. But I didn't. Verse number 21, then said Saul, I have sinned, return my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. Sounds like he's going to get right. Sounds like he's making a trip to the altar in church. Hey, we can be hopeful that maybe God's doing something in Saul's heart, and God was. But Saul was still so good at cheap, shallow repent- or confession, he had never really got hold of real, genuine repentance after he had walked away from the Lord. And he never let go of his grudge. And it was based entirely upon a perceived wrong. Think of that. I believe this, Pastor, that many of the things that we hold against others, many of those things... We're going to someday stand before the Lord, and the Lord's going to say that's not how it was. My dad called me one day and said, Son, you're preaching down there in Macon, Georgia. I had a great uncle that lived down in Gray, Georgia. Would you see if you can go see some things about him, find his grave, see where he lived, that sort of thing. I said, sure, Dad, I'll I'll try to do it. So I got up in the next morning early, about 6 or 7 o'clock, and I went to the place in town that I thought I could get the most information the fastest, McDonald's. <laughs> there was a bunch of people sitting around, and they were talking, and I threw his name down on the table. Oh, yeah, yeah, we heard him. Oh, yeah, he lived over here. Oh, yeah, I know him. And they pointed me to the right place, and it's a good place to go if you're trying to do some private investigation. But anyway, I went to the courthouse, and I actually bumped into probably someone who was a distant relative of mine. He said, oh, yes, and this is where he lived, and this is where you'll find his grave site. And, and uh, I perused through some of the records there at the courthouse. You know what my dad told me about this great uncle of mine? He said that he, when he was 11 years old, his dad went out hunting and never came back. And for years... He thought, as well as all of the family, thought that he had abandoned the family. And that seed grew into anger and resentment and bitterness. You can imagine, if it was true, how you'd be upset about that. And he was, all of his life. In fact, in his later years, in his 60s or 70s, he said, if I saw my dad lying in a gutter, I wouldn't lift a finger to help him up. Well, one day... He was with his friends in one of these restaurant booths in a restaurant that would have a radio in each booth. And he heard the radio announcer come on with breaking news that a fisherman had been fishing over in a certain area of that area of Georgia. And he'd gotten his line all tangled up in the branches. And when he pulled over and he began to untangle the branch from the line, he looked into the woods and he noticed a skeleton. And he got out and went and examined it, There it was a rifle. It was a hunter that had died. Now my uncle, or great-great uncle, knew where his dad went hunting. He knew what kind of rifle he had. And he knew enough about his father's anatomy to note that when the announcer said he had a set of perfect teeth, he said to his friends, that's my dad. And sure enough, it was. He hadn't abandoned the family. Maybe he'd gone out and gotten snake bit. Maybe he died of a stroke or a heart attack or some other other problem. But he hadn't abandoned the family. And yet for years and decades, that was the narrative that the devil had set in that family to create strife and bitterness. To encourage them to hold on to a grudge. I believe someday we're going to stand before God and say, But God, this is how it was. And the Lord's going to say, No. This is how it was. And I believe that the judgment seat, there will be Christians who will hang their head and weep because they wasted their life holding a grudge. Have you ever thought that your perspective isn't omniscient? That it's not perfect? That there may be another vantage point that you haven't seen or that someday God will show you? Have you ever thought that maybe, maybe your perspective isn't Completely right? Maybe there's another way of looking at this. Not so for those that hold on to a grudge, like Saul with a tight-fisted, white-knuckled grip. They miss the mark. They're always holding on to their weapon, seeking to hurt and inflict damage. They destroy their family. And most of the time, they base it entirely upon a perceived wrong, not a real wrong. Turn, please, to 2 Samuel 13. 2 Samuel 13. In this passage of Scripture, there's tragedy, there's drama, there's family highs and lows. Tamar and Absalom are the son and daughter of one wife in David's harem. Amnon is the son of another wife. Now David, though he was a man after God's own heart, was by no means perfect. And he had more than one wife, and that's not the will of God. In verse number 1, it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister, whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. So watch, as is often the case with blended families, there is a problem with this. Statistics and psychologists will tell you this fact. Amnon loved his half-sister Tamar. Not his real sister or full sister, but his half-sister. Either way, there was a blood relation. And it's not real love anyway. It's lust. It's wicked. It's a perversion. And so, it says he loved her, but he thought it hard to do anything to her. If you love someone... You won't have that conflict. But Amnon did, he loved his half-sister. You understand we don't believe in that around here. Amen? <laughs> this isn't West Virginia. Oh. I shouldn't have said that. But you understand, we don't allow That's not right. That's not proper. That's not decent. That's not acceptable. This is way into the scriptural narrative. But Amnon had a friend who in fact was... Jonadab, who was his cousin. Jonadab said, what's the problem, Amnon? He told him. And Jonadab basically said this, you're the king's son. You can do whatever you want. Fake like you're sick. Ask her to be your nurse and do whatever you want. So he did. And by the way, Jonadab was one of the first people to throw Amnon under the bus when it was all said and done. Young people, listen to me. Don't you let wrong friends influence you in the wrong way, no matter where their influence comes from. And so now, now he does. Verse 2 Samuel 13, verse number 10, Amnon said unto Tamar, Bring the meat into thy chamber that I may eat of thine hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. And when she had brought them in unto him to eat, he took hold of her and said unto her, Come lie with me, my sister." And she answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly. And I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee, howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice. But being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. In other words, he raped his own half-sister. This whole thing is wretched and wicked. In verse number 15, then Amnon hated her exceedingly. What? Well, I thought 14 verses earlier, he loved her. Well, it wasn't real love. It was lust, as I said. And lust can turn to hatred that fast. Yeah. When it finds itself unfulfilled, and lust always does, it finds a physical fulfillment, but then a whole lot of guilt. When it finds itself unfulfilled, it'll turn to hatred so that the hatred, verse 15, wherewith he hated her, was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. And she said unto him, There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. Then he called his servant that ministered unto him and said, Put now this woman out from me and bolt the door after her. And she had a garment of divers colors upon her, for with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. Then his servant brought her out and bolted the door after her. Now, my friends, listen to me. This is not a perceived wrong. This is a real wrong. There's nothing right about what happened to Tamar. Nothing right. She had been wronged. She had been drawn into her half-brother's confidence. She had been asked to do an acceptable and reasonable task. And she had done that task. And in the doing of it, she had been sabotaged and raped and forced what was wrong was dreadfully wrong. And by the way, our churches are increasingly filled with people just like this. In society, within their homes, sadly even under the guise of religion. It's a tragedy. But well, watch, I want to focus on her, her brother. Verse 19, and Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of divers colors that was on her and and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, Hath Amnon thy brother been with thee? But hold now thy peace, my sister. He is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Now watch. If you want tonight, you can pick up a grudge and hold it like Saul with a tight-fisted, white-knuckled grip. Or you can pick up a grudge and hold it like Absalom. Watch me. With a secret pocket grasp. I believe this is the way most of our Christians in Bible-believing Baptist churches just like this one hold a grudge. It's more convenient to their reputation. It's less conspicuous or obvious. They can hold on to a grudge in their left hand and in their left pocket and go around during handshake time and fellowship time on Sunday morning and nobody will know the better. I believe there may even be some here tonight who are holding on to a grudge like Absalom with a secret pocket grasp. Smiling, shaking hands, acting like everything is fine when down deep there's a hurt and a wound that instead of bringing it to God, they're nursing and never letting it heal. Now folks, listen to me. It's not a sin to be hurt. It's human to be hurt. And it's impossible to live in this world without being hurt. But it is possible to live in this world without harboring hurt. It's not a sin to be hurt, it is a sin to harbor hurt. And when you begin to harbor hurt, you begin to hold a grudge, you begin to get bitter. You begin to hold on to bitterness and a root of bitterness springs up and troubles you and many are defiled. It leads to profanity. It leads to fornication. It leads to all un- a number of untold and, and unmentionable sins. When you harbor a grudge, when you harbor hurt. Some of you have been harboring the ship of hurt in your harbor for too long and in your heart for too long. You need to put some TNT on, on it, send it out into the bay and blow it up. Give it to God. Lay it at the foot of the cross. Quit harboring that hurt. Put a ban and a blockade and and, uh, a a forbidden sign on your harbor. No, no. We'll not allow you. You turn your ship around and get out of here. That's what needs to happen in the hearts of God's people. Watch this. Forward motion will forever be stopped until bitterness is dealt with. Forget about it. Forget about any blessing of God. Forget about praying for the blessing of God. Forget about seeking the blessing of God. Forget about uh, singing about the blessing of God until you deal with that bitterness. Some people hold on to that hurt for months and years and sadly decades. Christians who've been forgiven the greatest thing of all the world, all of their sin, past, present, and future, and you can't forgive someone for something that they've done against you? You refuse to let it go? You refuse to lay it at the cross? He said, Preacher, if I do that, then I'm if I forgive, then I'm saying that there that no sin ever happened. No, that's not what you're saying at all. If you forgive, you're saying that a sin happened, that an offense was committed, but you're saying I'm bigger than that, and I've got a God that's bigger than that, and I can trust him even through this, and I'm gonna lay it at the cross. I'm not gonna hold on to it. You see, when you hold on to unforgiveness, you're harboring pure hatred, pure hatred, and you know where that leads murder, and every other kind of vice. Unforgiveness is pure, unadulterated hatred. Don't call it anything else. Don't harbor it and mince words with it. It needs to be let go. Some of you need to let go of some things in your family. Some of you need to let go against some things, some things against some former members of this church. Some of you need to let go uh, of some things that have happened to you that have been done by people that are unsaved. Some of you need to let go of some things that are done, have, were done to you by people that have now died. Some of you need to stop being bitter at God. Not that God needs forgiveness, but some people are so angry and so stewed in their hatred that they have leveled their hatred against God because they think if He were really God and He were really good, He could have prevented whatever happened. So, some of you need to let go of bitterness against the situation. How about it? You're just going to go on? Day after day, week after week? How, how's it helped you? How's it drawn you closer to Jesus? How has it made your song sweeter? How has it made your prayer life better? How has it helped you become a better soul winner? How has it helped you help someone else? Hey, let me help you. Let me help you. I'm going to come pray with you at the altar. Let me help you. What's going on? Oh, I'm just bitter. Oh, let me tell you how to deal with that bitterness. Hold on to it, brother. Hold on to it. Hold on to it. Just harbor it deep in your heart. Don't let go of it. I mean, if you can, give them a dirty look. Or just don't even talk to them. Give them the silent treatment. That'll help you. All right. Stay at the altar till you're done. (laughs) I don't think that's a very good personal worker to choose from. So, So it hasn't helped you at all, if you're honest and it didn't help Saul, and it didn't help Absalom, not at all. Absalom held on to it. Notice verse 21. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. Now, time out. Was it right? Think before you answer in your mind. Was it right for David and Absalom to be angry at this? Of course it was. Is it right to be, to, to be apathetic towards rape, towards incest? No. No. That should anger you. But neither David nor Absalom channeled their anger in a proper way. David got angry and then apparently forgot about it or didn't do anything about it. Absalom got angry and never forgot about it. He put it in his pocket and never let it go. Verse 22, Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated, hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. You would understand why he would. But you know what he did? He gave him the silent treatment. (laughs) You should see. Someday I might write a book on my view from the platform. Because some people don't think that the preacher sees it. The preacher sees everything that goes on. If I'm preaching, I see when somebody over here on this side rubs their nose. I see when somebody on this side is sleeping. I see when the wife of someone on this side is sleeping, elbows the guy that's sleeping. (laughs) Well, the preacher sees everything while he preaches. Isn't that right? He's watching everything. He's preaching his message, but he's watching everything. Some people act like the preacher doesn't see anything. I was preaching in New York, and there were some people that came in the back, a a wife and, uh, excuse me, a mother and her daughter, and they had popcorn and peanuts. I thought, am I a sideshow? What in the world? I mean, it was like, you've got to be kidding me. I see everything from the, I I see everything that goes on. Some teenagers think that the preacher doesn't tell when they're looking at their phone and on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and playing video. I know that. I can tell the difference between a kid, even if I don't see the phone. I can see the glow on your face and I can see that you're not looking at the verses. When I say look at the verses, you're all concerned. I can see all that. And, and, And some people think the preacher doesn't see. Sometimes when I come into a, pla- into a church service, this is what I see. In the pew or in the foyer or in the spirit of the church, I see one person over here. I mean, it's like the fighting Irish against Ohio State. I mean, they're just ready and fast at it, hard at it. I mean, ready to throw down. Some people are like this. I come into a church and folks are like this. I mean, they're not talking to each other. Now, I'm not talking about Third graders. I'm not talking about the nursery. I'm talking about full grown adults. No, nobody can accuse us Baptists of not knowing how to fight. We know. And if, if, we don't, if we don't have something to fight about, we'll make something up. But the fact is sometimes, in fact, more often than not, we're fighting about the things we shouldn't be fighting about and not fighting about the things we should be. Should be ashamed. The silent treatment for two full years. I said, how's it going with your brother? I don't know. I haven't talked to him in two full years. Okay, <clears throat> time out. I'm not the sharpest crayon in the box, but if that's the case, something's not right. How's it going with that, uh, that uh, preacher of yours? I don't know. I haven't talked to him in a long time. I don't talk to him. Come to church, sit, listen, get out before he gets out. Leave during the closing prayer. Really? That's how shallow your Christianity is. Something's bad wrong with that. Look at 2 Samuel 13. Look at what it says. Verse number 23. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is beside Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, now thy servants hath sheep shearers. Let the king, I pray, beseech thee, and his servants go with thy servant." See, he's binging, all. you're the king, I'm the servant, bit. He's just trying to show a false sense of humility so he can get his way. And the king said to Absalom, Nay, my son, let us not all now go, lest we be chargeable unto thee. And he pressed him, howbeit he would not go, but blessed him. Then said Absalom, 'If, If not, I pray thee, let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said unto him, Why should he go with thee? So apparently David knew there was a rift between the two. I mean, I'm sure it was rippled all throughout the throne and all throughout the palace. And he asked the question, why should he go with thee? But Absalom pressed him, verse 27, that he let Amnon and all his king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say unto you, smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not, have not I commanded you, be courageous and be valiant to carry out this murder. (laughs) And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded then all the king's sons arose, and every man got him up upon his mule and fled. They were valiant and courageous enough to carry out the murder, but then they got on their, their, their vehicle and fled to town. You don't have to flee if you're doing what's right. But what had motivated it? Amna Absalom holding on to a grudge. He said, well, it wasn't right for Amnon to rape his sister, his half-sister. That's true. And he was just getting, he was just getting just due for his deeds. That's true. He was say he was reaping what he'd sown. That's true. But it wasn't Absalom's responsibility to bring in the harvest. It wasn't Absalom's responsibility to exact the vengeance, but somebody that's holding on to the grudge, the longer they hold on to it, the more they think it is their responsibility. Are you holding on to a grudge so that nobody sees it? Just because nobody sees it doesn't mean it's not there. Just because nobody sees it doesn't mean you you, you have a right to carry it. We're not talking about concealed carry grudges here. That's exactly what it is. Who is this man? Who is this man lying in a pool of his own blood? Who is it? Oh. Preacher, I think that's Amnon. Amnon, the one that raped his half-sister Tamar. Yes, Amnon, the king's son. Yes. And who carried this out? Well, Absalom was behind it all. Absalom, the one that had carried... I wonder wonder what your grudge is going to lead you to do. I wonder what holding on to your grudge will cause you to someday do. Let loose of that grudge and then pick up a pistol. Let loose of that grudge and pick up your phone and just let it all vent out on social media for shame that we do this and still claim to know Jesus as our Savior. what would be ashamed if we do? Years ago, I was preaching in North Georgia. There was a man there who came to me after the service. He said, Brother Dwight, let me tell you a story. He said, years ago, he said, I was a nominal Christian at best, if I even was a Christian. My wife and I weren't faithful. We had a trouble with one of our sons. He was an adult son. He was living at home. He wasn't honoring us. Staying out way late at night and he was hanging around with the wrong crowd, getting involved in drugs and alcohol and only the Lord knows what else. So one day my wife and I, one night, we were about ready to retire and my wife was standing at the kitchen and he said, he said, I I was standing right down the hallway, right by the bed. All of a sudden lights turned in to the driveway. Next thing I know we heard a, A door shut, then the door opened, and my wife screamed, He's got a gun! He's got a gun! It was my son. Bam, 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 bam! Several shots were fired. One grazed my wife. One came down the hallway and lodged inches from my heart. He said, whatever I needed to settle with God, I settled it in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. He said, and I got squared away with the Lord. He said, they removed the bullet and they did immediate surgery. He said, it was just inches. The doctor said, it was, if it was just inches more, it would have killed me. He said, and after it was all said and done, charges were leveled and my son went to jail because he had been involved in other things that were dreadful. He said, having gotten right with God, now a whole new world opened up. I began to minister to the people in jail and found out that not only were there people in jail, but there were families that were affected by their jail time. He said, and I would go minister to these men in jail and find out about their families. God opened up a whole new world for me and and a ministry for me. He said, but every day when I emptied my pockets, I'd take out my wallet and my keys and my change and the remainder of that bullet. He said, I'd put it there on the dresser, and every morning when I'd put my belongings in my pocket, I'd put that bullet in my pocket. He said, years had passed, and my son was still serving his jail sentence, and he said, I was driving down the road one day, and the Holy Spirit said, pull over into this little dock area by the lake. I did. He said, get out. I did. He said, I want you to walk down to the end of that dock. And I did. And the Lord said, down at the end of that dock, now, son, you've held onto that bullet long enough. You've looked at it and let those memories flood through your mind long enough. He said, I want you to take it from your pocket and I want you to get rid of it and throw it in the lake. He said, I reached down and felt that familiar weight in my pocket. I took it out, I held it in my hand. And after I prayed a prayer to God, he said, I threw it as far as I could. Never to see it again. That's what some of you need to do with a grudge. Tonight. Take your Bible and turn to one final passage. Acts chapter number 7. Acts 7 and we're through. Acts 7 and we're through. In Acts chapter 7, we find Stephen, a mighty servant of God. He wasn't a pastor, he wasn't an evangelist or a missionary. He was a faithful servant in his church. He'd been one of the six men selected in the early days of the church to lead in the church's serving of tables. He was standing for what was right and the Sadducees and the Pharisees started to give him problems, just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day gave him problems. And the problem arose when Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Isn't it something how even after Jesus is dead and arose and arisen and gone to heaven, his word is still giving the religious leaders problems. And they're having problems with it and so they bring Stephen in Acts 7 and they... They question him on this. Hey, explain this. Do you believe that? So you're a threat to the temple. Stephen in Acts 7 preached an extemporaneous message. Really, out of the conviction of his soul, it was one of the best messages ever preached in the history of the church in the last 2,000 years. When he preached it, he filled it full of Scripture, filled it full of history, filled it full of application, all of which are vital elements to a good Bible message. And when he came down to the end, he took the sword and applied it. In Acts chapter 7 and verse number, verse number 47, it says, But Solomon built him an house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in and heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the bur- betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it? <laughs> you know, let me say this to you. There is a movement afoot in our world, and sadly even in some of our kind of churches, that says the preacher can preach the Bible, he can interpret it, he can expose it or exposit it, he can explain it, but he can't apply it. That's too far. (laughs) I want to say, if the preacher doesn't apply it, he ain't preaching. It's his job to apply it. This is not a sword set under glass as a museum piece that we all gather around every service and say, ooh, ah, isn't that a beautiful, beautiful instrument? This is the sword of the Spirit. It's to be unsheathed from its scabbard and it's to be pierced. It's to cut. It's to wound the enemy. It's to cut out the cancer. And if Stephen had just historically explain things, if he had just exposited the word, if he, had just, if he had just illustrated it and not applied it, he would have lived a long life. But because he applied it, he got right there under the skin of those who were his enemies. And sometimes when I read Stephen, I say, boy, am I a wimpy preacher. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Ghost, betrayers and murderers of the just one. Whew! He turned the heat way up on the oven. <laughs> Verse 54: When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. by the way he did see Jesus because the Bible record says it he saw Jesus standing which is the first time that we know of that Jesus stood after he had sat down and finished his work he's standing to honor to revere to respect the very first martyr the first of millions who would lay down their lives and shed their blood for the Lord Jesus Christ now Can I just go out on a limb right now and say, no one in this room has suffered like Stephen. No one here has been hurt like Stephen. And yet look at the last words he said, verse 60. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. If you want tonight, you can hold on to a grudge like Saul with a tight-fisted, white-knuckled grip. Or you can hold on to a grudge like Absalom with a secret pocket grasp. Or you can, like Stephen, with honor and Christianity. And like Jesus, hold on to a grudge like this, with open-handed grace. You said, preacher, seriously, you can't hold on to anything like that. That's right. And it's time for some of you in this room to let go. Your marriage will be the better for it. Your family will be the better for it. Your children will be the better for it. This church will be the better for it. The country will be the better for it. The cause of Christ will be the better for it. Souls in your sphere of influence who are slipping and dying and going to hell and who will go to hell unless you let it go would be the better for it. Open-handed grace. Open-handed grace. Open-handed grace. You say, when? Right now. You say, how? With the help of God. You see the why? You see the what? You see the where? Right here. It was December 7th, 1941. A day the president would say would live in infamy. Little did we know as Americans that on that day, a Japanese sneak attack would be launched against our American naval forces in the Pacific. Early in the early morning hours, Mitsudo Fuchida, the leader of the attack, would send along with 300 men, he would come off of a Japanese aircraft carrier fleet come down over the island of Oahu and drop their bombs and torpedo bombs and nearly destroy America's fleet in the Pacific. This was the day he'd lived for. Mitsuda Fuchida all his life had lived for an opportunity to die and kill for the emperor. And now this was the crown jewel of his military career. They, along with several others, made it back to the Japanese aircraft carrier fleet, and they were able to make it out of reach of the American arm of justice. He would also be at the Battle of Midway and fight at other battles. He would nearly escaped death at the Battle of Midway. At the end of the war, he found himself going back to his family farm in Osaka, Japan, and he found his life fairly unfulfilled. Mitsudo Fuchida was his name. The day that that attack came, news spread to America and came to the West Coast in California where there was a young recruit that was peeling potatoes in a military kitchen and he heard of the attack and he took a potato and threw it against a wall. He said, we'll kill you, you dirty Japs. And from that moment forward, there was a growing hatred in his heart towards the Japanese. He was Jacob de Jacob DeShazzar was one of the Doolittle Raiders that would fly in a risky raid over Japan and over even into China where Japan had territory and he would have his, his, his vehicle or his plane shot down and he would be taken into a Japanese POW camp. There in that Japanese POW camp, his hatred for the Japanese did nothing but increase. They would ration food, if you wanted to call it that. They would beat him on several occasions, and his hatred just boiled. But toward the end of the war, the Japanese realized that the Americans were going to best them. And so they began to show some leniency, some leniency to their prisoners, which included allowing them books to read. One day, a book dropped into Jacob de Shazar's cell, with which he was familiar. He had a praying mom back home. The book was a little New Testament. He took that New Testament and he opened it and he began to turn its pages and he read it through in three weeks. And through his scrawny, emaciated figure, he started again. And the second time through, God smote Jacob de with conviction and he fell down in his Japanese cell and he got saved. You know what God did? God changed his heart of hatred to a heart of love. And he saw these Japanese soldiers with pity. The war ended after the bombs were dropped. Japan let their prisoners go. He came back to America, nursed his wounds, regained his health, received special training, and went back to Japan as a missionary. He wrote the little pamphlet, I Survived the Japanese POW Camp, or I Survived the Darkness of Japan. You can find it online even now. He wrote the little pamphlet, And he began to distribute it widely in Japanese and in English. He'd been there for some time, Pastor. And while he was there, he was at a low because it seemed like his ministry was hitting a wall. So one night he spent all night in prayer with some of his associates. And the next day went out in soul winning. And as they were soul winning, he and some associates passed one of these flyers out to a sharply dressed man that just got off the train. He took it and was immediately captivated by the message. He sat down and read it, and it eventually led to his salvation. His name, Mitsudo Fuchida. The man who led the attack on Pearl Harbor was saved as a result of Jacob DeShazzar's testimony. Mitsuda Fuchita would go on and become an evangelist, traveling both to the Orient and to America, preaching several times. A few years ago, I heard, I met a man who was at Tennessee Temple years ago when Mitsuda Fuchita came, and he asked all the veterans to stand and he asked their forgiveness for the havoc that he had wrought in their life. You said, "Preacher, praise God! Praise God for Mitsuda Fuchita, the man who led the attack on Pearl Harbor, getting saved." You know what I say? Praise God for a man named Jacob de who learned how to hold a grudge like this. Would you bow with me in prayer?